Welcome to Health Hats, learning on the journey towards best health. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege living in a food oasis who can afford many hats and knows a little bit about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. Most people wear hats one at a time, but I wear them all at once. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. Research follows life. Life comes before research. My diagnosis of multiple sclerosis preceded my need for research. Let's talk about Comparative Effectiveness Research, or CER. CER is simply research that tells us that treatment A is more likely to be helpful than treatment B for a particular group of people in a particular set of circumstances. Before researchers conduct clinical effectiveness research, people have had symptoms. They've tried to manage those symptoms independently. They got diagnosed, and then they tried different therapies prescribed by their doctor. Some doctors tried treatment A, some treatment B, and even some treatment C. Researchers, clinicians, or patients wanted to know if A was better than B and found funding to do comparative effectiveness research. Even if years of research occur and get published before I get diagnosed, my life happens before research becomes relevant. Relevant in the context of my life, my circumstances, my conditions, my genetics. This perspective is the cornerstone of my advocacy for person-centered research. I'm delighted to introduce my guest, Amy Price, a senior research scientist at Stanford University in California with the AIM AIM Lab, Anesthesia, Informatics, and Media Lab. Amy is also research editor with the British Medical Journal, or the BMJ, in the UK. The BMJ is a patients-included medical journal. Everything Amy does involves putting lay people with researchers and finding out how end users, clinicians, researchers, and systems can work together and benefit each other. An everyone included model. I first heard Amy's name when the BMJ recruited me as a patient reviewer. I invited Amy as a guest because I knew that she was on the forward edge of including patients in research. She uses her positions and experience to advocate for patients and caregivers and mentor other researchers worldwide. Now, one of the challenges of including people with lived experience in research is that they come to that with all their emotions, grief, and life. Amy's husband died recently of COVID-19, acquired after admission to a hospital and then rehab facility with a severe break in his femur. 
I'm grateful that Amy feels comfortable sharing that tragedy with us in the context of patient-included research. Amy, it's really good that you could join me today. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm trying to think about how I met you. And I'm thinking Brian Alper introduced us. Yeah, Brian Alper. Dr. Brian Alper is a fabulous, a wonderful man. He is a doctor who created a point of care system as a medical student because he, he had trouble recognizing and remembering medical terms. Mm. So then he found out that other people also had the same problem. And that blossomed into a whole beautiful point of um, care system. I ended up using that point of care system because I took an evidence-based healthcare master's at the University of Oxford. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the few people that was not an MD. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Google only goes so far. And I found that the, that the point of care system was a, a wonderful way to get me up to scratch on technology, terminology, and what were the, what were the current treatment options. Mm -hmm. Amy referred to clinical point of care or POC. That's when clinicians deliver healthcare products and services to patients at the time of care. The electronic medical record is a point of care system. Dr. Alper created Dynamed, a clinical decision support tool that combines the most current clinical evidence with guidance from leading experts in a user-friendly personalized experience. With Dynamed, clinicians can find answers to questions at the point of care with unprecedented speed. I invited Brian to join me in a mastermind support group. He recommended that I include Amy. Also, you're going to hear the term PI and co-PI. PI is for primary investigator, the leader or the leaders of a research project. So tell me about what does that really mean, this patient caregiver participation and research? What does that mean and why should anybody care? Because the biggest challenges in research can be because you can design something for someone, but if you don't know that person's needs and they're the only person they're the only one that can tell you those needs you can't just measure those needs objectively and think that you got it so for example i could measure you for a full set of clothes those clothes could fit you perfectly but they might not be the clothes that you want to wear mm -hmm. the texture might not be what matches um your skin you mm -hmm. might not like uh you might not like the color so then if there's things in those clothes even though they fit perfectly from, let's say, a quantitative perspective of measuring, then mm -hmm. you won't use them. 
So then therefore, let's look at it. If that was a drug and you're supposed to take this drug intervention three Mm -hmm. times a day. And the first time you have some feelings about it, you have some side effects and you think, let's just half the dosage. And pretty Mm -hmm. soon that, that drug that was supposed to remain in your bloodstream to make a difference can't make a difference anymore. Mm-hmm. And you can't tolerate the drug. And this is this actually happened with people in mental health. So the first mental mental health drugs, they did stop people from having hallucinations. And so like Thorazine and Melaril and stuff like that? Yeah, especially the, mm-hmm. the first generation ju- drugs. So people thought they were a great success because it meant for the first time in history, um, they could reduce the amount of people that were institutionalized. Mm-hmm. But the people that were having those problems, that, that had mental illness, they felt that actually they had more freedom in the institution because those drugs caused them to slur their speech, yeah. um, gain massive amounts of weight, be unable to maintain an intimate relationship have dry like dry mouth and eyes Mm -hmm. and they said i'd rather be crazy because Mm -hmm. that didn't bother me that bothered other people Mm -hmm. and i don't want to hurt anyone but at the same time i can't live my whole life like this yeah so then when that started to become more known they could have studied that at the beginning and they could have developed drugs that solved those problems, which now for the most part, they have. But in mm-hmm. those days, those drugs shortened the life of people by many years. And so that was a fail. And mm-hmm. we see many times where interventions and pharmaceutical drugs, medical devices, the problems are seen very early in people. But because the study has an agenda the study goes on and those particular things aren't recorded and so then you have that's how we get more recalls that's how we get challenges and also there's implementation problems because if the intervention doesn't match um, the person's lifestyle or what they feel comfortable using then it will be cast aside and so then it's the same as not using it at all Okay, so that explains why people should care about it. But that affects them on the outcome end. But how about people becoming involved? So there's the challenge of recruiting participants, sometimes called subjects, is one thing. But then if you're talking about recruiting people to participate, to inform about life in general, and the the fit, where the fit isn't the, necessarily the thing, but the color and the texture and all that. Who is it that gets involved in that kind of participation? In the studies that I do, and that we see we see at the BMJ, for example, more and more. Mm-hmm. It's all kinds of people get involved for different reasons. So th- the thing is to provide opportunities where people want to get involved. Mm-hmm. So if I say to you, I have a job scrubbing toilets. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful research position. Would you like that job? And you think, 
no, not today. Get me out of here. Mm -hmm. So it's up to me as a researcher to share tasks that you would find pleasing. Mm -hmm. So just as it is with any part of a business or like our family or our life, you're building you're building a useful relationship and a relationship where there's a give and take between what you can do, what you can't do. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a patient and I'm helping with a research project, I may want to know something about statistics so that I can be more informed about the study, Mm -hmm. but I do not have to be the team statistician. And I think that we err on the fact that people either think that they're just there to share their experience or they think that they're the sun, moon, and stars for the team, which really neither is true. So in a good team, every piece does it does its work. And the challenge is if you look at a car, for instance, just a car has parts that do different things. So if I try to make my engine be a tire, that's not going to work. Like it's it's the wrong shape. And so we have, we have to sort out what shape do we take in our research studies and what shape do we do we take when we involve people both researchers and also lay researchers are our patients they're a part of the team and they're a part of that relationship so they are actually going to it's not one size fits all you don't just pick up a patient and put them in research and say i've got a patient that's good enough no it's it's a specific patient that fits Mm -hmm. those research needs and it could be At one point, you might want someone that's very new in their experience because that's what you need to answer your research question. And that's Mm -hmm. who you think could be more helpful. And then another time you may want people that would, that are very experienced, just, and it's the same in any other kind of relationship, that that give and take back and forth. Is that helpful? Yes. Yes. And I, I like that because I'm thinking about a conversation I had with somebody from the University of Michigan, their performance improvement department. And their philosophy was anybody who wants to be involved, the answer is yes. And the challenge was developing these multi-tier systems where the bulk of people were sort of survey responders. We do a survey and they'd respond. But then there were people who were more testers, like trying out different solutions, different potential solutions. Then there were people who were really good at communicating and sharing stuff like on social media. And then there were people who were really good leaders and they could be a co-PI. I love that they were going, how do we get to yes for everybody and and design it so that we have many different tiers. But the challenge was that that was a challenging infrastructure to build and fund because you don't just do that by waving your magic wand. It takes work and it takes an intake system. It takes a support system. It takes a technology to do that assessment and offer those varying opportunities. Anyway, okay. That's true. Yeah. But consider this. You don't have to build all at once. Okay. Okay. So I suggest when people 
start with co-production, public and patient involvement. What does co-production mean? Co-production means that you work right alongside the researcher and it's a form of public and patient involvement. So co-production, which is what I prefer. I usually have people working with me all the way through the study. Some people would do like the model that you were speaking about, Mm -hmm. find out what they're good at. And Mm -hmm. um, that's where they would join that aspect of the study. And often I would give them one task to do find out if they're faithful, just the same as I would with um, anyone I had on board, employing them or as a part of the research team. Mm -hmm. And then as trust bills, then I I would give them more, but I would make room for that in the study. So it's okay to start small. And I think that it's preferable because when you start small, you can see what you've got and you can grow together. So it's almost like a family. So Mm -hmm. in a family, if you have one child or if you have two children, then you can meet those children's needs. You can see them as individuals. Um, they can grow with you. But mm-hmm. all of a sudden, if suddenly you are blessed with quintuplets, yeah. and they're all, you know, then that's like a... Right. That's, that's a whole different problem. It's, yeah, it's, a whole, it, like it's a whole different world. Yes. So if in my family, I was blessed with quintuplets, then I would say, okay, this is what we've got in front of me. This is what this is what I'm going to work with. I'm going to love those kids and I'm going to give them the best childhood that I can, imperfect as I am. I'll try to be their mom. And their dad would come along for the same for the same journey. But I wouldn't wake up one morning and say, the next birth I have is going to be quintuplets. Let's celebrate that. No, I would prefer just like, uh, one at a time. So <laughs> sometimes we make those adjustments, but it's, it's okay to start small, and it's okay to start with what you need. So if you if it's your if it's your research project, you know what the needs are. So to seek out people that might have those particular qualities, rather than try to change your research project to meet the needs of whoever volunteers. <laughs> Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E dot com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. Is your research mostly clinical research, meaning either mm-hmm. medical, hospital, medical, clinic, or do you? Is it also community-based research? That's a really great question. I do everything. Okay. I do everything and I find that they work really well together because one of the barriers to research is sometimes clinical and social care or communities don't talk. Yeah. And so that's a really great gap. You can always find when you're moving through those areas, anytime that you can join them together, Mm -hmm. it's a plus for everyone. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Now in this this pandemic, you can really see where that gap is biting us in the ass. Because when I look at a lot of these collaborations that are going in these fast track research projects, they're very heavy in the save the life arena, which it should be. On the other hand, we're so much of managing this pandemic for lay people happens at home or in the community. And there's not that much happening there right now. And I think it's cut partially, I think it's because we're not good at it. It's not something that you can ramp up. You can ramp up stuff that's familiar, but it's hard to ramp up stuff that you're not familiar with. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. And also with the pandemic, you have all the fear aspect Mm -hmm. and people don't like to make new friends when they're fearful. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. My husband actually died of COVID. He was infected by a healthcare worker. Okay. And the most difficult thing was not seeing him. So he went into the hospital with a broken femur. And we watched him die over FaceTime. Mm. And that was horrendous and unnecessary. Mm -hmm. There were many ways that... It could have been arranged for visits to take place Mm -hmm. because we had to make end-of-life care choices Mm -hmm. on behalf of another person that Mm -hmm. you're seeing through a phone screen. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, It's an unbelievable experience. And I see that repeated all over the world. And yet what I don't see is I don't see people getting together and say, how can we as patients as clinicians as systems do this better yeah you know how can we make this work Um, and everyone laying their cards on the table we're the system we're afraid that we'll get sued it will cost us more money the clinicians if we if we increase risk and and we don't have ppe and we don't have ppe but i like in my case the world health organization gave me the ppe i had people to don and doff I had the training. I had people interceding for me, mm-hmm. but they would not let me in the hospital. Mm-hmm. I actually considered breaking in mm-hmm. um, because it's my husband. It was yeah. my husband, right? But at that particular time, the ward was so closed that it was face recognition badges, and those were changed by the day. Mm-hmm. And then even sometimes... The smaller things, like when you pick up someone's belongings, they had us wait. It happened twice because it was a rehab facility and then a hospital. Both times we had to wait three and a half to four hours in the Florida sun for someone to to give us the belongings. Mm. And we were isolated from other people who were also waiting for the same, the same thing. The belongings are given to you as biological waste. Mm. Very last things that you have of your loved one are a garbage bag full of stuff. Mm -hmm. I think we can do better. I think it's 
I think it could be better packaged. I think people could have some maybe counseling before they go. There could be some mentorship, some making people welcome, even at a distance. You you could even have almost like mini ceremonies going on for people. And you mm-hmm. could know it's going to take it's going to take four hours to get this together. Thank you for checking in. If you check back, just like you do at Walgreens or Walmart to get a prescription, mm-hmm. if you check back, we will be ready for you in 3.2 hours. Is there something else you can do for that time? Mm-hmm. Or even send them a letter ahead saying, this is a process. This is how long it will take. And the kindness in returning right. those goods to the, the patients is really My brain goes with that. I have been an ICU nurse and an ER nurse and a quality improvement professional. But what goes through my mind is that the gap between what people need, so their loved one is going through this, and the gap between what people need or the questions they have and what we're working on, what where our attention is, where the professional's attention is. There's such a gap. That's the problem. It seems like with COVID, it's like all the challenges that we have, whether it's clinically, relationship, research, that are it's just all the challenges are on steroids. They're just magnified. They're just exploding. And it's just getting, yeah, like a magnifying glass to look at the wart and or the elephant or whatever. It's the challenge. And so like now I'm on calls with people who are networks of patient family advisors where people will get together and just talk about what they're dealing with in the particular organization that they're on the patient family council. And so much of the conversation is about family presence for people with people who are sick. And the, and the range is from crying rage to sobbing frustration. And it's very, it's almost nobody is talking about, we tried this and this worked, this didn't work. But they're not even to the point of figuring, like trying stuff. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is that when we try it, there's such an overwhelming sense of grief we don't share. So, for example, Mm. in this particular place where my husband passed, Mm. in that hospital, there was one iPad for the whole floor, for the whole ICU. Oh, my God. One iPad. So... One wonderful, amazing nurse, ICU nurse, yay nurses, decided, why don't we just put his phone on his IV pole? Then all we have to do is turn it on. Mm-hmm. And they left it on the IV pole. So people would come in. We would call the desk and say, please just turn on the phone. Mm-hmm. And so then we had the opportunity to speak with my husband or sing to him or pray or read him something when he like when he couldn't speak anymore or just watch him like just Mm -hmm. to be there to be a a human presence there because we couldn't actually be there and it was like more precious than anything and then 
another time uh, they said because of different uh, strokes that he might feel fearful or he might not be able to recognize the people that are with him. So I asked, could they pretend they were me? Just touch him nicely. They were so kind and they, and they did that. And, and I remember one of the neurologists, and this is just such a contrast. So one of the neurologists, she shared with me how she hoped he could get well, how she, what were the barriers in the way. And then she just cried. It was real. It was real. And I just instantly loved her. I instantly mm-hmm. connected because it was like, this is human. And mm-hmm. that was in, in contrast to another provider that was selling hospice like it was uh, a used car. Mm. And and my feeling what at the time was my husband knows the people that are, even if he's not fully conscious, he knows the people that are touching him and that are caring for him. And he needs to be in an atmosphere where he feels, where he feels familiar. Mm. But then of course the aspect is the ICU is quite full and we have to make room. And I, at that point became very selfish. And I said, the only person I have to make room for and care for is my husband that we've been together for 49 years. And that's where my focus is. He will not be moved. How do you Those think are- this this experience that you've had with your husband and COVID, how is how do you think that's like this is like really recent, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's very recent. Okay. So how are you seeing it if you take three steps away from yourself? and look and see how it's affected your work now as a researcher. Like, do you feel like your glasses are tinted different or they're they're a different prescription? Like how do you think you're gonna, are you already doing your work a little bit differently? You are already very patient caregiver focused in your work, but this can't, be have not not be affecting you like massively so are you seeing that your approach is changing at all oh that's a different question to answer i think that grief has several stages that -hmm. people go through and i don't think until you go through the other end Mm -hmm. that you realize the impact that it has on your your daily life. Mm -hmm. I think that I probably have less tolerance for unkindness Mm -hmm. (laughs) and hierarchy. I just, I think that the compassion for patients and people on the other end of treatment and also for the clinicians that treat them who are often horrendously overworked mm-hmm. and under uh, like underappreciated. Mm-hmm. I don't know that has changed. Mm-hmm. I have a disrespect in many aspects for a growing disrespect, unfortunately, for systems and for politics and for the way 
that evidence is shaped by people's agendas and not by actual research evidence. And I have, I think, a greater passion that we as human beings, no matter whether we're researchers, whether we're clinicians, whoever we are, Mm -hmm. if we have to make decisions on things, we have the right to have evidence knowledge available to us. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't matter how people feel about explaining that to us. It's not their prerogative to have feelings about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I think, uh, I think, in my opinion, that the right to information should be a human because mm-hmm. it allows us to make informed shared decision, and mm-hmm. a decision can't be shared unless it's informed. Mm-hmm. It's only a manipulation if it's not a shared decision mm-hmm. um, or the decision is to make no decision at all. And I also think in terms of decision-making that it's important to respect the individual as to how much of the decision do they feel comfortable in making mm-hmm. rather than have some preconceived idea of mm-hmm. how much of a decision they should or shouldn't make how much information do they want and to do everything in our power to provide that I have had in the research aspect I think that I've had some misgivings and not done well with them about working day and night and boundaries which I'm really not that good at but I have to get better. Mm. And those are the major changes that I can see right mm-hmm. now. But I think it can also be like a growing child. Yeah. When we have our own children, mm-hmm. we don't really see how much they've grown until their pants are getting too short. Right. Or they're growing out of things. And I think that we often, other people can see changes in us, but we don't necessarily see those changes. Yeah, in yeah that's fair. That's totally fair. So um, I'm going to turn it around just a little bit before we wrap it up. I'm now on the uh, Board of Governors for PCORI. Yay! Thank you. And I, I, it's an awesome responsibility and opportunity. So as a researcher who is a patient layperson, considering researcher, where should I be focusing my attention in terms of this place to affect strategy for this patient-centered comparative effectiveness research? That's a very interesting and important question. And I don't know if you'll like the answer to this. Okay. But... This is, I find that in strategy and in changing policy, it's who you are that makes those differences. And when an open door comes up, you'll see that there's a gap. And sometimes you can walk through that door and make a difference. And Mm -hmm. that's time to do it. And then there's other times where you could speak up, but no one's hearing. So at that point, you're there, you're you're creating a presence, you're building trust, and that's okay. That's okay as well. So it's almost like in anything like that, to watch your moments, because there's certain places 
where you will be able, where you're destined, you have a destiny to make a difference where no one else on that PCORI board can. You have special capacities and, and you were chosen to do this. If you ask me as a, as a researcher and someone who's involved in co-production, what would I like to mm-hmm. see? Mm-hmm. So I can give you my shopping list. Mm-hmm. Hold that thought because I want to hear at least a couple of things that are on your shopping list. But okay. I want to tell you that I do what you're saying. I'm, I'm like you. I'm a seasoned person. And I've been a change agent all my life. And I think you're, what you're saying about trust and opportunity and stepping through the door when there's a crack to step through, rather than trying to identify this is what I need to accomplish, blaze forward with that. So yeah, I think that's very smart. Okay, give me two or three things that are on your shopping list. On my shopping list? Yeah, on your shopping list. All right, on my shopping list, co-production and uh, patient involvement, fund it. Fund it with enough money to make a difference. Fund it with enough money to train researchers and to train clinicians together on the project that that they're working on Fund it so that there's a future for for lay researchers on that project to to move forward into another project, maybe with the same team, and think that instead of just a research project, you are you're building lives, you're building a future, and and you're building a system, and widen the scope. There's very little in Pakori that is actually user generated in terms of the original ideas so in the the original ideas why couldn't just as a test some of those ideas the big ideas the ones that are going to be funded big because you can't you can apply for a ten thousand dollar seed grant and it's wonderful and it's wonderful that they're available it's wonderful that pakori does things like that because it does give people a start so i'm not making that small in any way i'm like congratulations let's let's do more of that but then why not take a why not take a big chance on a on a big grant where some where a difference could be made and make that um completely something that was comparative effectiveness that um, a group of end users decided. And then maybe they brought in the researcher and the researcher is the consultant and the clinicians are the consultant. I think it would be, I think it would be amazing to see, uh, to see something like that. I don't know if PCORI is ready for that, but I think that one day they will be because there's good people uh, like you also now. There's good people at Bacori. And mm-hmm. one thing that people fail to see is they compare it with other systems, like, for instance, the NIHR and the Australian systems that have been in place for so many years with some kind of level of public and patient involvement. In the U.S., we really had nothing. Pokori came and they have done landmark things and they have outdistanced with less money many of those other kind of seasoned organizations. Mm-hmm. So I really respect and admire the work of Pokori. Mm-hmm.
The NIHR is the National Institute for Health Research, the UK's largest funder of health and care research and provides people, facilities, and technology that enable research to thrive. Those are good ones. Really good ones. I, I think that, uh, yeah, thank you. You got a third? That was two. You got another one? That's two? Oh my gosh, I get three? Three wishes, yes. I would love to see organizations that would step forward because one of the things about grant funding agencies is they're very responsible for the funding that they give out. They have to get outcomes back because otherwise um, it's not coming to them again. So they can't just say here patients on people who have no experience and don't know what a statistician is here, just take this huge project and run with it. Right. Because they're responsible. The funding agency is responsible to the taxpayers and to other funders. They're responsible for the outcomes. So they have to have outcomes. So let's not forget that. Mm -hmm. But what if certain organizations stepped up and said, like, I know for sure that at the AIM lab at Stanford, we would do this, where you would step up and you would say, I will take a major project. I will be a mentor for a for a co-investigator as a patient on the major projects, and we will be with them all the way. We will work together. Uh, so that would be my yeah. um, that would be my that would be my third wish. I would love to see that happen. When I thought about this going for trying to do this and was accepted, it was like, okay, so what is it that I'm here to accomplish? And I think if I had to say one thing, it, it's about health equity. And I think the things that you've talked about are key to that, to key to that happening. So I appreciate this. Yeah, I hear so much conversation, for example, with buzzwords. So buzzwords like uh, level. Like health equity. Health, to a certain extent, level, uh, level the playing field, health equity, make everyone on the same hierarchy for a season. To me, if you're using hierarchy and power in the same sentence, that's a fail. It's more like a relationship. Like when I look back to my long marriage, the success of that relationship wasn't that we strove to make each other equal. The success of that relationship was the relationship that we built the relationship and the relationship itself created the respect, the respect and the equality and the partnership and the trust. And all those things are the things that are necessary for people to work outside of hierarchy, because then the rules, so to speak, aren't broken because they're inborn and you, you would not break those rules because you don't want to hurt the relationship. But if they're hierarchy driven, it's that's a rule. Mm-hmm. How solid is that rule? How far can I push against that rule? Mm-hmm. And all the time that we're doing this, 
trying to find out what rules are real and what rules we can break and ask forgiveness for later is wasting time. And it's time that's taken away from building together in relationship. Does that make sense? So to me, real equality is in respecting each other and even more than even the kind of respect that covers one another's backs. So I have good days and I have bad days. So in my good days, maybe I'm a star. Mm-hmm. On my bad days? Not so much. Well, so not much. So not much. I probably don't deserve a relationship in terms of if I was to have that because because I deserved it. So my part is to try to minimize those days. But when I can, as a friend, as a partner, as someone that's working with me, will you cover me? Will you love me for who I am, not in not somebody you want me to be? Mm-hmm. Because if you love people as they are, or work with them as they are, or partner with them as they are, whatever words that you want to use, then as you do that, their strengths will come out and they will become everything that you wanted them to be. They will, that will unleash power and possibilities and capabilities and loyalties in them that, that they never even knew they had themselves and you didn't know. And sometimes we can see the potential in other people they can't see in themselves. Mm-hmm. And as a friend, then I can build that potential and I can help you see you can do this. So I, I think that's a, a really important part of health equity is the respect, the relationship and the permission to be different. So mm-hmm. I don't have to be like you. I don't have to think like you. Mm-hmm. I only have to respect you. I have to respect you. I have to care for you. I have to listen to you. And if I listen to you and listen to hear, not just to respond, but really, but listen to you, then that is going to change me. That's going to change me because I'm going to see things in me that need to change based on what you said. And if you're truly listening to me, the same things, the same thing's going to happen for you. And that builds a force and it, it builds a team that I think nothing can break, but it's not easy. It's hard work. It's hard work to co-produce things. It's yeah. hard. It's easy to do it something stuff. But then you've got another person. They think differently. And, mm-hmm. and then you want to be kind and you want to be co-producing. And then you realize that actually you're not co-producing at all. You're just expecting everyone to do it your way. And you're looking for people that will collaborate or cooperate on your system. And you don't even know how they think about that idea. And I can't tell you the amount of times when... I found myself like that. And I thought, I don't, I've got what I want, but do they have what they need or what they want? Mm -hmm. And so that's all for me. That's part of the, that's part of the journey. That's part of the journey of co-production. It's part of the journey of like a partnership and we gain more. So you can see things that I'd like to do things where I might be really weak. Mm -hmm. So I, so you can sit there and say, yeah, that Amy, like she's a real loser. And I can't believe what I had to say you know, to explain <laughs> that to her. She's so thick. Or you could explain it to me. You could just explain it to me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you could do the strong part. So one of the beautiful things that 
in the area of grief, one of the beautiful things that came from that is sometimes in the early stages of grief, you're not really doing your job. And the workload for everyone else doesn't lessen. Mm-hmm. And yet I found, I found in some areas, people just quietly picked up tasks mm-hmm. or made another way to do things to yeah. create, like to create um, space and freedom. And mm-hmm. that's like also a part of partnerships. Yes. So I can get anyone to work with me, almost anyone, most people, a lot of people when I'm, at the top, got lots of things going for me. Everyone will come for the ride. But when the ride gets bumpy, yeah, who's left? Yeah. And the people that I want to work with, the people that I want to partner with for a lifetime are the people that will stay ride, whether it's bumpy or smooth. Mm-hmm. And I'm also fully prepared to stay for the ride with them. Mm-hmm. Whether, like whether it's bumpy or smooth, it's it's definitely like it's it's a two way street. Mm-hmm. I'm used to hear that in, in in things about marriage, people would talk about giving fifty fifty. Everybody has to be fifty fifty. My husband and I decided that's wrong, and the reason why is because each person has to give a hundred, and when you both get a hundred, you get you get a, a synergy that mm-hmm. is amazing. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you ha- start measuring how much you're I've given yes. it up now. That's you've you've defeated you've defeated the purpose. You've fallen down into the the hierarchy pit. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has been a lot. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. This is great. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. This has been such an honor to. This has been a hoop. It's yeah. like just talking to a friend. That's yeah. Like, good. Good. Guess what? We're, yes, we're on our way. We will talk again. That's one of the really nice things about doing this is, so I'm a nurse. And one of the things that I've like always loved about nursing is that I had the opportunity to have brief, intimate moments with people. And it's just, it's such an honor and so gratifying and enriching. I really missed that in my, once I got into administration and consulting and got away from the direct care. And oddly enough, I find that this interviewing can be like that. Well, I actually found this interview healing. Oh, great. Good. I found it it healing and and calming in a way. Um, It It made me thank you. It just reawakened good something like something on the inside, which is it's really beautiful. Good. And I I'm so grateful for what you're doing in this space to make a difference for people. Like it's like every feet every place that your feet have landed, the nursing, the administration, the policy, the strategy. Yeah. You've just done whatever you need to do to make a difference. And I try. I try. But it's, yes. it's a lot. And I think that a lot of times, do you know that there's people in my life that changed my life by it with a word? And I didn't know it or recognize it mm-hmm. until years later. Mm-hmm. That word never left me or that impression or something that I mm-hmm. saw. And I think, I think that it's the same. I think that you're changing destinies 
with those uh, personal direct moments. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. We'll talk again. Okay. You too. Wow. That was a rich and enervating conversation. Person included research, co-production, tragedy, grief, health equity, relationships of life, and research. After I completed this interview, I thought, research and tragedy, what's the through line? What's the story here? For me, like Amy, I have a 45-year marriage that's the epitome, the model for co-production with respect, partnership, growth, and wonder. It's a high bar for everyone included research. I also think that passion, enthusiasm, and activism in relationships, research, and advocacy have the inevitable consequence of disappointment, grief, and exhaustion. One doesn't come without the other. Mutual respect and support go a long way to keep the fires burning. Thanks for this chat, Amy, and thanks to all of you pushing and pulling for everyone included research. We have so much work to do. Onward. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources on my website, www.health-hats.com slash pod. Please subscribe or contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.